You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. On Belief is a show about true survivor stories of escaping cults and high demand groups. If that describes you and you'd like to tell your story, it can be anonymous, please email me at info at onbelief.com. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Season 2, Episode 21, International Society of Krishna Consciousness. L. Bhaktin L. Bhaktin is a person who is not initiated. My name is Parameshwar Das. My original name is Paul Paradise. And my name is Sam Richardson. Um, I'm also known as Shyamarupa Das. When I first encountered it, the, the philosophy, the theological philosophy presented was much more intellectually sound and comprehensive than anything else I had encountered. And I'm not initiated yet. I've been following Krishna consciousness for about well, full-time for about seven years, but I have not yet been initiated by a spiritual master. I'm actually in the process. But I met the devotees when I was 20 years old in 1986. Um, I was on my way to work one morning, and the devotees were on the street chanting uh, Harinam. They are on the street with drums and cymbals, and I was very attracted to the chanting even from the very beginning. Actually, admittedly, you know, I did like some other intoxicants too, but by that, that was some of what had fallen away. So, you know, I spontaneously stopped, you know, the pot smoking or whatever. It had already gone away on its own. So that wasn't a factor anymore. I would say, um, honestly, at this point, my attraction for meat eating has gone. It's completely gone. I, I'm not like, I'm not disgusted by people that eat meat. I just have no, it just doesn't mean anything to me anymore. My, my attraction to engaging in intoxication is gone. Um, I was never really into gambling. I'd say probably attraction to women is probably the thing that's still in. I found that that knot unties rather slowly. I mean, of course, there's regulated principles that you adhere to if you're going to accept initiation, like no meat eating, no gambling, and so forth. Those things are really a source of misery. So there's really nothing to be missed. Or you shouldn't take on the tapasya, the austerity, until you are fully convinced of the necessity of doing so. Well, the institution serves a higher purpose. You know, the institution itself, I'm not necessarily attracted to or repelled by. Uh, it's the essence. And I am attracted by the teachings of Lord Krishna and Bhagavad Gita, by the teachings of Sri Chaitanya, and how Prabhupada presented. He distilled the essence. It wasn't so much about being Indian or being Hindu, it was about the soul, about being a person, and about the experience of the soul in relationship to God. As these people, they're going to, there are people who will seek to find fault, but those of us who are committed to this path understand why we're here and what we're doing, so we don't mind so much that some people will criticize. In an indirect way, we take it as a compliment because it means that they're noticing what, what we're doing. Just about every comedy movie from the 70s that has a scene in an airport has Hare Krishnas in it. They were often a punchline because they were colorfully dressed in saris, they were chanting, they were singing, they would often parade down streets in large groups. It was 
a little bit unusual for the average person in the 1970s onward. Who are the Hare Krishnas? What do they believe in? Today on my show, we have an ex-member, Eric Bernasek, who has an interesting story to tell about being a child of a person who was in a high-demand group, and then finding the International Society of Krishna Consciousness as he got into university, and he's here to tell his story. Welcome, Eric. When I was a kid, well, throughout my life, really, but certainly starting when I was young, my mom was involved with and then um, and so that was my first contact with, well, you know, what I wouldn't really recognize until later in my life was also a high demand group. But that was my first exposure to, to something like that. My involvement, I mean, I didn't really have any personal involvement. Uh, they have a program for young people that I took when I was, geez, I don't know exactly, let's say 10, something like that, certainly in grade school before, you know, middle school, high school. But other than that, my contact with the organization was mostly in the time that I spent in their offices when my mom was either volunteering or working there. And then the time that I would spend sort of in the back of programs, you know, just like any kid would spend waiting for their parents to be finished at their job, <laughs> just, you know, hanging out, marking time, waiting for the, the day to be over with so we could go home. Um, she was pretty heavily involved as I got a little older. So that was, you know, I can remember a stretch of time where my dad and my sister and I would go to their offices every Friday and spend, you know, several hours there and then go home together as a family. So, like, I think my early memories of it really were boredom, you know, not really understanding necessarily what it was, um, but meeting a lot of people that were also involved in this organization that, from what I could tell at that time, was just, you know, they had these public programs, at least that's how I thought of it as the at the time. And I met a lot of those people, you know, friends of my mom primarily, but friends of my parents who either took these programs or were involved in putting the programs on. And, you know, that was just a part of my, my world, you know, as a, as a kid growing up was not just being involved in these programs, but then also, you know, a lot of my parents' friends were involved to one degree or another. And, uh, in an so when you were in the child's program of, did you learn about all of the same things that the adults learned about, you know, that, life has no meaning, that all you have is now. What was it like? Um, my memories of it are pretty vague because it wasn't even <laughs> at that point. It was still <laughs> so it was the kids. <laughs> my most vivid memories were this exercise that they did where they would have everyone stand, not all at the same time, but like, you know, a, a portion of the group, groups at a time would stand on the edge of this you know, you say stage, but it's just like a raised platform where the speaker would usually, you know, sit and stand. But you would stand on the edge of this platform facing the audience and just basically stare at the audience. And kids would, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of freak out a little bit. You know, people would faint or throw up or cry. So, I mean, that was my most vivid memory of it. I, you know, still not really able to put that into context. I mean, I guess I am from later, 
involvement. But, you know, as a kid, it didn't have any particular meaning to me. I think I probably thought of it as, you know, overcoming your fears or, you know, something like that, something just sort of vague. But outside of the programs, my mom definitely communicated with us in the, you know, the language of, of Were you disciplined in a manner consistent with that group? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I mean, but I think aside from, you know, it, the the things that my mom would sort of, I guess you could say, use on us were benign. You know, these thing, these. Uh, in particular, she had this thing about like, if you were sick, sort of like visualizing your illness, right? Like, how big is it? What color is it? What shape is it? With the idea being that, you know, this, I guess, sort of coming in touch with what was going on either in your mind or your body or some sort of, you know, psychophysical combination of the two that you would either lessen that problem or overcome it or something like that. I think my mom had sort of a weird relationship towards health, but I'm not sure that that's entirely due to I think that was also just, you know, sort of either family or something that she picked up along the way. But more than anything else, I think that's something that I, I picked up from her at that point when I was younger. So while you had your relationship with this group, did you internalize their mission focus? Because we've heard from other people that maybe it's not like Scientology where they want to clear the planet, but it's more about, you know, they have this amazing technology. They need to share it with the world. The people who know about it are just better people. I don't think I saw it in terms quite that stark, but I I think personally what I uh, took from it was more along the lines of, which is kind of funny because it's sort of the opposite of what they say, was that there was something wrong with me that needed to be fixed, right? That there was like something lacking in me or some sort of shortcoming that I had that needed to be fixed or alleviated either through, you know, a program like or, you know, the, the effect that it had on me long term was searching for that through some sort of spiritual, you know, spiritual means. So I, I definitely felt in, you know, on top of that or in addition to that, you know, you, you, you phrased it as sort of that they had the, you know, the solution or the, the way to sort of fix the world and make things better or, you know, in, in a sort of exclusive sense. I definitely picked up the idea that there was some sort of you know, fix. So there was some sort of movement, not just for myself, but for the world at large. And that maybe not, but that there were, you know, groups or movements or whatever that were dedicated to that goal. So the main focus of today is going to be to talk about your relationship with ISKCON. So can you tell me what the major belief system is? ISKCON's philosophy is ostensibly quite simple, but what you get in the brochure or the elevator pitch is really just the public-facing part of something that is, in practice, much more complicated. Members of ISKCON believe in God. Uh, they believe in reincarnation. They believe that the purpose of life is to end the process of reincarnation through what they call selfless devotional service, which is basically like subservient action towards God uh, generally and to the incarnation of God known as Krishna more specifically. They also believe, perhaps most importantly, that the most essential and indispensable aspect of that service to Krishna is service directly to a living representative of Krishna, 
uh, someone they called a guru. Um, in short, they believe that there's no way to end the process of reincarnation without becoming the disciple of a guru. Um, and disciples are typically subservient, uh, humble, unquestioning, things like that. ISKCON spiritual practices are also superficially simple. The members of ISKCON follow four rules that they call the four regulative principles. So those are uh, no meat eating, no gambling, no intoxication, uh, including caffeine and cigarettes, and no illicit sex, uh, meaning no sex unless for the purposes of having a, a child in marriage. They also emphasize regularly chanting their mantra, the Hare Krishna mantra, which official members are expected to chant about 1,700 times a day, which is somewhere around two hours of focused daily meditation, required focused daily meditation. But like ISKCON's basic philosophy, their basic practices are just like the lowest threshold of what's expected of someone who wants to be and remain a member. Um, there's a seemingly endless number of rules you could eventually follow if you wanted to that govern all sorts of things, regular human things like cooking and eating and bathing, going to the bathroom, including even rules uh, for how uh, a member of ISKCON should uh, interact with other members and interact with people in the world who are not members. There are, like I said, many, 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 many rules that you could adopt and that you're expected to adopt both through sort of subtle social pressure and also, you know, more formal agreements that you make either with your guru or your temple or, uh, you know, the other um, members around you. You can really forget all of that stuff because the only thing that you really need to know in order to understand ISKCON and how and why it operates is that the members of ISKCON, without exception, uh, regard their founder as perfect and infallible and categorically uh, above criticism or even questioning. Let's talk about how you got involved in the International Society of Krishna Consciousness. My understanding is that you got interested in it when you were in university. How did that come about and how did you get interested? Yeah, um, involved in a, you know, in a personal sense. I think a lot of people that grew up around the same time that I did had some impression of the Hare Krishnas you know, through movies and TV and stuff like that, which is obviously not the, great, <laughs> the greatest impression. Yeah, it's always a punchline. I mean, they were in the movie The Naked Gun, even. Exactly. But yeah, it was after my freshman year of college that I visited a, a temple for the first time. And I, I hadn't really had any contact with them. So what made you want to stick around after your initial introduction to the Krishna Society? After my freshman year of college, I was playing in a concert. I, I went to school to study music, and I, someone that I had played in orchestras and stuff with uh, during high school, we were in a concert together that summer, and his sister came to the concert, and she was wearing a sari and had tilak on her forehead, which is this clay that Hare Krishna devotees put on their faces to sort of mark themselves as, uh, as members of the movement. And I was intrigued by that. I thought it was strange and sort of curious. And she was someone that I had not really a, a close relationship with, but I had impressions of her from the past as sort of trustworthy and principled and sort of an honest, you know, person, you know, uh, i.e. not crazy. <laughs> um, so I asked her about it and she was more than happy to to tell me about it, really. I mean, she, she started uh, sort of telling me about the movement and invited me to meet her and she made this like picnic. We went out to the park and, you know, had this meal that she'd made. And we sat and talked about uh, the Hare Krishnas. 
To unlock the rest of this episode, visit patreon.com forward slash K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R. It's only $5 to unlock over 20 hours of content.